0: Well, I think in this pre-messianic generation, far as we are from the spiritual source as we said before, it's natural to lose to lose touch. When you live in a culture that teaches that there's no real absolute meaning and there's nothing really beyond your experience, that's very disconcerting. It can be very, very alienating. It can lead to a real ex- existential pain. The answer to that is, is religion, good religion, not, not superficial, cheap religion, but good religion. The problem in the world today is not religion, it's bad religion, right? And therefore, People connected to a sense of meaning that is absolute, absolute frame of reference. That's the healthiest form of grounding and orientation that you, that you could possibly hope for.
1: Welcome to a new segment of Jewish Wisdom on JTV. We're joined again by Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Let's talk about your new book, As Dawn Ends the Night. You can get it in most Jewish stores, I presume. Um, What would you say is the
0: basic premise of your book? The basic premise of the book is that Jewish history fits into two phases. The first phase we call the phase of revelation, or Gilui, when there was prophecy and miracles. And then between the men of the great assembly during their their era, which stretched from Purim till Hanukkah, which is going back about 2,300 years, the lights went out, the prophetic level dropped to a post-prophetic, post-biblical era, which introduced what we call the phase of the, of, the, of the oral law. So the basic premise of the book is understanding that transition, what happened in human culture, what happened in human, the human psyche, the human spirit, because understanding that transition correctly is a major key to many, many subjects in Judaism.
1: What would you say to someone? Can, ma- yeah, sure. can
0: I show you? Sure. For your viewers. <laughs> Get a little reading. In the back of this book is oh, gra- a graphic chart. I
1: never saw that.
0: Okay. So my son prepared a beautiful graphic. I'm sure your readers can see that. That is an, uh, an overview of Jewish history. That's So brilliant. it takes you through from the creation all the way through, and it shows in the middle of the chart. Ali, if you care to hold the book yep. that way, and we can show your viewers. So the chart takes you through Jewish history. And this band here is the so-called Men of the Great Assembly. Mm-hmm. So until then, you had a prophetic era with the books of the Bible being written. And here you have the phase of the oral law, the Mishnah and so forth, where there's no open revelation at all. Mm-hmm. So that's the graphic display of that category. On this side, for your viewers, yeah. we have, um, we have d- documented the p- great personalities who lived in each era. Fantastic. But the main thesis here is that, is that human society and human culture and human intellect and spirit changed drastically at that time.
1: What would you say to someone that says, okay, so you're saying there are two phases to Jewish history, the sort of stage of open prophecy and miracles and then a closed stage. You could say, some, some, an atheist would come to you and say, well, that's a very convenient argument to make, to say that, you know, yes. well, previous generations had miracles, but we don't.
0: Yes, indeed. You are right. Not only that, the Talmud itself says that one who wishes to sell a lie puts his facts at a great distance, long, long time ago in a far off place. Mm-hmm. Indeed, it's true. However, although it's convenient, for, from an atheist perspective, it just happens to be true as well. <laughs> in fact, my book begins with a statement by a famous astronomer from the last generation who said that the reason I do not believe in God is because I see God everywhere in the Bible and nowhere in the world, mm. meaning that you know the two should match exactly. Our axiom is that the Torah is a perfect description of the world. I see the Torah mentions God on every line. That is supposed to be a perfect mapping to reality. I see the universe, I see God nowhere, and therefore one must be false. I trust my experience, the Bible must be false. What he didn't know, this great astronomer, is that the Bible maps to the world only when the Bible applies. Namely, when the Bible is being written and speaking. After the Great Assembly, the Bible falls silent. We move now into the phase of the oral law, which is derivative. And no longer is the Bible actively speaking to us in terms of being dictated and being manifest in the world. But isn't
1: it said that Abraham looked at the world and saw within it the Torah?
0: Indeed, so there's no question that you could fathom reality correctly if you were clear enough and um, great enough and living close to the dawn of history like he did, but there's no question it was easier for him in one way, in the voltage, in that the voltage of his time of history is much higher. We are now approaching the bottom of the feet of the human form. So, for us to fathom it with that level of clarity and prophetic insight, that would be impossible.
1: So, so, it's not just that you have a stage of open spirituality and miracles and enclosed, but it's that it actually it decl- it's always on the decline.
0: Yes, so this is what we call Yerida Sadoris, Yerida Tadorot, the decline of the generations, which is in fact a stepwise decline. So you have a set of generations for 500 years, a plateau. Then there's a great luminary who ends that phase, and we step down again. But of all these step-down stages, by far the greatest was the massive step from before prophecy, when there was prophecy around, prophecy, miracles, revelation, God speaking openly in the world, to the post-prophetic darkness that we inhabit now. Mm -hmm. Or as the Kabbalists would say, from the body to the legs.
1: Right. So where are we at right now in Jewish history?
0: Our generation is called Iqfasa de Mashiach, which means the footsteps of the Mashiach, the messianic form. But the Kabbalists, as always translated literally, not, we don't only mean the footfalls that you can hear of the messianic form, we mean the bottom of the feet. So we now inhabit in the, in the cosmic human form, the thick, dead, insensitive skin on the bottom of the feet. In fact, the, um, the Talmud says that, uh, that when man was cursed originally, in his battle with the serpent. You shall bruise his head, he will bite your heel. The poison is injected into the heel, even in Greek mythology. You echo of this, right? The heel is the vulnerable, the spiritually vulnerable part. The Talmud says that after death the heels do not rot, because death inheres in the heels even when you're alive. Um, One of the great authorities of the Mishnah was allowed into the cave where Adam is buried, the Magpela. And after sin and after death he saw that the light shining from Adam's heels was greater than the sun meaning the part that's dead even in life. So the heel is always the completely devolved, insensitive part of the body. So we're the generation of the walking dead. <laughs> that's, uh, you put it very well. It's fascinating, very inspiring. fascinating to know that the bottom of the feet are a medical mystery. Really? The thick dead skin on the bottom of the feet has no nerves at all. When I was a teenager in South Africa, we used to walk barefoot in the summer. I had a close friend who used to put his cigarettes out on the bottom of his own bare feet. Thick, callous skin, insensitive. But the most sensitive part of the body to being tickled. Very interesting. Mm. So Ramosha Shapira, one of our great teachers, put it this way. He said, our generation is exactly like the bottom of the feet. Totally insensitive to the worst brutality and immorality, but available for superficial stimulation that makes empty laughter. That's our culture. So we indeed are the bottom of the human form with the tail end, the pre-messianic generation. That's agreed. How long exactly this will last, we don't know. And so we are representing a tremendous... Devolution and insensitivity in human history.
1: Is, if, this is the, if this is the case that the generations decline over time in terms of their spiritual um, capabilities, um, how are we meant to feel? Aren't, isn't that meant to make us? Won't that make us just feel a bit rotten? You know, how can we really achieve anything of any spiritual significance?
0: Right, great question. So there, there are two important imp- important things to note. First of all, although we are devolving and declining and degrading, we are superior in one way. We see further. The reason we see further is because we stand on the shoulders of giants. So although we may be dwarves or midgets, but we see further than they did because we build on what they... And the analogy, there are many analogies. One is um, uh, many generations who dig a well, fruitlessly. And finally, after all the work has been done, one fortunate fellow, comes along and he strikes water, right? So that, so that he could never have done that without the work, but he reaps the, he reaps the benefit. The common analogy is standing on the shoulders of giants, which Newton famously said, if I've seen further, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. In fact, I could recommend to your viewers a fascinating book. The name of the book is called Otsog. Otsog. A moment's thought will show you. Otsog is On the Shoulders of Giants, by Robert K. Merton, who happened to be Jewish, a professor in the United States, Harvard professor, and he wrote a book documenting the history of the aphorism on the shoulders of giants. And it turns out that in the 13th and 14th centuries, there were classic Jews, Jewish rabbinical figures who used that analogy in their their writings. Newton picked it up later. And it's a fascinating academic discourse on that, that phrase. But we find it in Kabbalistic sources and Torah sources, and the concept is that although we are small, we can reach the moon, which they couldn't do. We can achieve technological feats that they couldn't do. We can have spiritual insights that they couldn't, only because of the barriers they broke that we can now pass through. And secondly, uh, your, your viewers might find it inspiring that you are correct. When we are such a low generation, we can achieve very little. And your take on that is, but shouldn't that be depressing? And the answer is this. The answer is that we see Jewish history as a continuum. Let's take, for example, prayer. Prayer. Thinking about it negatively, I would say the great, the great prophets prayed for the Mashiach, the Messiah. They were not, not granted. Rabbi Kiva, the great sage, right? He was so powerful that when he took his shoes off to begin praying, they used to pray without their shoes, it began raining. He asked for the Mashiach, no, no God. So what hope do we have? What hope do we have? But here's the answer. It's very important to know this. There's a barrel of prayer and Jewish tears that needs to be filled over history. The great prophets half filled it by themselves. Mm. People like Rabbi Kiva gallons. And as history progresses, each of us is putting less and less, but the barrel's getting fuller and fuller. Mm. And at the end of history, some broken-hearted, pathetic Jew will utter one last, almost hopeless prayer, and that will fill the barrel. And therefore, as things get worse, there's more reason for hope. You can put in less, but less is needed. And we have the privilege... being close to the phase in history one final effort will actually yield the result strike water
1: does the concept of the decline of the generations mean that we are morally weaker people i get i understand we have less spiritual capacity or insight but are we morally weaker
0: no we are morally exactly equivalent and this is because we have a doctrine known as the point of free will Morality means the struggle against the lower self. When you talk about morality, we see that as the battle between the higher self and the lower self. We talk about free will being applied in the area of morality primarily. And that battle is always equal. So no matter how high or low you are on the scale, you're always battling your own dark side. And that's always in proportion to, your good, to the good side. And so whether you are a lowly individual with tremendous disadvantages or a highly privileged individual with tremendous background advantages, it makes no difference. It makes an objective difference to the world, but not to your judgment, because you are battling your own lower self. And if you live in a generation of history where the lights are very bright, so then you're operating at a level of great voltage. Mm. The danger is when the voltage is greater, you can achieve more, but there's more danger. When you're working with some little uh, cables of electricity, you know, might be able to power a few appliances. If you touch them, not pleasant, but you may survive. But if you're working with the high tension lines, with 11,000 volts running through them, you can power a city. But if you touch one of those, you fry it. And therefore, if you lived at a phase of Jewish history where the voltage was intense, great spiritual things could be achieved, prophetic insight. But of course, if you put a foot wrong, disastrous. Mm. So the balance is always maintained. You know, I would say that if you play tennis, tennis is meaningful only against someone on your level. If you play somebody way weaker than you, there's no victory. Mm. If you're a good club player and you walk out onto the court, you find you've been challenged by a three-year-old. The kid walks out there with his diaper and his, you know, you win, but it's insignificant. On the other hand, if you play the world champion and you never see the ball once, I wouldn't say you lost, I would say you didn't play. Tennis is meaningful only against an opponent, more or less on your level. And the axiom of Jewish spirituality and free will and the axiom of Jewish history is that we always pitched in battle against warriors as mighty as we are. Mm. And so as your free will level grows, your, your, your lower self grows as well. And you never outgrow the battle. So the answer to your question is, we are not less moral or weaker morally than 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 previous generations. We are pitched in a battle against a moral challenge proportional to our greatness and that never changes.
1: Yes, someone um, re, uh, said to me recently, they said, where, where is the source for uh, the, the, the concept of the decline of the generations? But I was actually grateful to read in your book that you actually provide a series of sources. Would you mind just elaborating them a little bit just for our viewers? Yes,
0: there are many. The Talmud says if the previous generation, if they were like men, then the next generation were like donkeys and we we're like ants, you know. so or. Another statement in the Talmud is that the, the fingernail of the previous generation was greater than the belly of the latter, right? Or if they were like gold, we like dust. There are many, many rabbinic statements in the Talmud that indicates an objective decline over the generations, mm. notwithstanding the fact that we may see more and have insights that, that, that we can have because of what they did. That's, that, not to be, that's not to be, to be denied. Does it mean we,
1: we have the ability <clears> to <throat> overturn what prior generations decreed?
0: That's a wonderful question as well. If your question is meant technically, the general principle is that a later generation cannot overturn a ruling Mm -hmm. of a previous generation. In other words, because of the decline, we don't have the competence (coughs) to do that. The the technical language in the Talmud and the codes is that in order to overturn a ruling of a previous generation, you need a Sanhedrin, a convocation of sages, greater in number and wisdom than the previous. And axiomatically, that's almost impossible because we are getting this. Not totally impossible, but... That's the general concept, and therefore the general idea is, with many, many reservations and exceptions, we're not able to overturn previous rulings if they fit into this. Here's, a, here's, a, here's an insight you might find interesting. There's an axiom that in Talmudic logic a, an authority may not argue with anyone in a previous stage. In other words, you can argue, let's say we are now called Dahrenim, the last 500 years. It's legitimate to argue with anyone in your face. You're in the same league, mm-hmm. to use a football term. You cannot play people in a different league. It's just illegitimate. You, never get, you just never get to. Sometimes, paradoxically, we have a later generation beautifully resolving a question that was unanswered by a previous one. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Let's say you go back 800 years and you have a fantastic question of the, the Tosfos, right? The great, the great commentaries on the Talmud. They remain with an unresolved question. Sorry, we don't know. Fifty years ago, you have a great Torah sage who writes a beautiful resolution to that question. How is that possible? The principle you begin with is, if they did not give that answer, almost certainly it's wrong. Mm. This latter day, great. He gives the best answer that he can in terms of his wisdom at his level. They almost always begin with the words, if not for the fact that Tosas didn't say this, I would have suggested. Mm. Here's a beautiful analogy. How is it that a person less competent could succeed? where a person more competent fails. I once heard this from Rabbi Shokin, a wonderful teacher, Rosh Kolol in Azata. He said this, imagine two men imprisoned in a room. One can see and one is blind. They're prison, imprisoned. The, the sighted man sits on a chair. The blind man starts feeling the walls. And eventually comes to a crack in the wall and he feels he can slip out. And he slips out and escapes. Do you have a paradox? The blind man has escaped. The sighted man, he remains trapped. But the solution is this. The blind man feels the gap in the wall and he takes it. He Mm. takes his escape. The person who can see, sees through the gap. He sees it's a heck of a lot worse out there than it is in here. So the person, yeah, and therefore the greater generation declined to give that answer because they saw far enough to see that if you give that answer, the 13 problems you encounter down the line. Mm. So we're always using this principle that the later generations in an absolute sense are lower.
1: Um, let's touch on an issue d- you discuss in the book, which really highlights the contrast between this idea of there was once open miracles and now closed. Yeah. Um, idolatry is something which, you know, it's the second of the Ten Commandments that's prohibited. We hear it spoken of a lot in, when we read the Shema, you know, you shouldn't worship idols and worship other gods. Um, but we, don't, we struggle to relate to that. How can we relate to it? What does it mean? And are there idols of our age?
0: Right. First of all, there are idols of our age, but not in the same sense. So here's a brief overview. Is The temptation to idolatry was once the most powerful of all temptations. Hence, the, 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 the prime among the negative commandments, the second of the Ten Commandments. There's no way the toe would prohibit something that's simply silly. right? It should be a 614th commandment, thou shalt not be an idiot. <laughs> it doesn't say that, right? So obviously, this is posited against something very real. Secondly, the names of idols in Torah are the same names as gods. Elohim acherim, the same name. Mm. That is very, very significant. Mm. Hebrew always expresses essence. You would expect the, expect the names of false gods to be words denoting emptiness, but they're not. They're borrowed from the names of God. Not kevav Vavke, not the name of essence, but other names. This is a sure clue that there's something very real in those forces. And so here's the key. The key is that idolatry was not the worship of a graven image. People were so foolish as to make an image in, in wood and then claim that it made them. Now, that's just ridiculous. A person like that doesn't need religious help. He needs psychiatric help. <laughs> Idolatry was not that at all. Idolatry was relating to the correct channels of energy bringing down the dispensation that the world needs from the source. The Kabbalistic the term for idolatrous powers are channels, pipelines, bringing down energy, what we call the zodiac, for example. The zodiac, in Hebrew, the word for a zodiac is mazal. Mazal means something that flows. In modern Hebrew, nozel is a liquid. Mazalot means the 12 zodiac elements that take the oneness of the source and bring them down through the channels into the world. An idolater was not some idiot having a fetish that he thought was powerful. Mm -hmm. An idolater was somebody looking to to suckle, to nurture himself from the genuine energies that come down. The mistake he makes that he doesn't go to the source, he's happy with the agency that delivers the goods, so the Greeks, a god of war and a god of love and a god of fertility, god of wealth. There's no god who created the world. Who needs him? He doesn't deliver the goods. So idolatry is going to the correct source, but not going far enough. It's going to the cabinet minister who handles your department rather than going to the one who controls all of
1: it. Is the cabinet minister someone one can lobby, in a sense? Or is does he de- taking all the directors from in, the prime minister?
0: In, in, no, indeed. He is given the authority, and sometimes illusory, nevertheless, that it could appear... That certain sacrifices made in that direction might be absolutely that. Absolutely. There's a genuine temptation. But the point is that the craving to connect with that source, by the way, the graven images are only representations in the world of those things, right? Mm. And they're almost always human in form, by the way. Because what's really being worshipped is, I'm what's important. I want him to serve me. Here's the difference. A real servant of God says, God, what can I do for you? An idolater says what his God can do for him. There's a complete reversal, right? And therefore, and therefore, the, um, the concept of idolatry is looking in a genuine direction, but not going far enough. The, um, the craving was almost irresistible. The men of the Great Assembly, who oversaw that transition in Jewish history that we spoke about, they annulled the temptation, the craving for this type of spiritual experience. And from that time on, the idolatry we find in the world is simply ancient customs. The language of the Talmud is min hagavosem yadem. These are old, paying respect to old customs. So people today who offer gifts to gods and images mm-hmm. and in the Far East and so forth, they're doing it out of respect for tradition, but there's no or almost uncontrollable craving. So no. is
1: it even classified as idolatry?
0: It, that's a good question again. Indeed it is, because technically if you bow down to an image, you are transgressing. Okay. I have Buddhist friends. But
1: would you say it's probably less they're less culpable in a sense? Because it's, I don't know, Technically,
0: Technically, no, no. on the contrary. I would, say, I would say probably the earlier generations may have been less culpable because mm. they had a much stronger temptation. Yes. Yeah. I have Buddhist friends who refuse to bow. They do the meditation, or Japanese sword fighters, or martial arts experts. They, in fact, in Jewish law, you may bow to an opponent before you kill him. No problem with that. But you may not, you can bow in respect to a teacher, but not to an object or a space. So the Japanese sword fighters, for example, or the Kendo fighters, the religiously knowledgeable Jewish ones, they will not bow to the weapon.
1: Some of you bow to the Kotel, I think, when they go there.
0: That's simply a, a respectful, deferential backing away. Right. right. But um, bowing to God, yes, we gave up bowing and also praying with the hands extended because those were Christian customs. Oh, that used to be done? Indeed, oh, wow. indeed, it indeed. Yeah, is. The correct position for prayer to extend the hands above and in front. Wow. Absolutely, yes. But that there was, there was decreed that we should not do that because it became a Christian practice. And to differentiate ourselves, we don't do that. So, idolatry nowadays is, a, is an empty shell compared to what it once was and was one of the significant changes made by the men. The, the key is this. When they annulled the desire for idolatry, they annulled the ability to be a prophet. These are two faces of the same thing. Idolat- idolatry means I reach beyond myself and I extend myself to connect with the source. Prophecy means I hear the source speaking to me. Mm. When you take the organ for one of those out of the human psyche, you lose both functions.
1: And you also say that that's when atheism becomes more.
0: Indeed, powerful. idolatry became atheism. We're on the, we're on the eve of Hanukkah. Hanukkah was the beginning of the battle, the battle with the Greeks, who taught not that there's a false god, but that there's no god. Mm. It was the first time in history that anyone could suggest such a thing. Before that period of history, nobody could cogently suggest such a thing because it was clear that there was a spiritual reality. Mm. You made contact with it continually. Our generation is a generation that's completely disconnected.
1: So when we say that the Amalekites were sort of the anti-Jewish people, so to speak, um, Haman, who wants to wipe out the Jews, denied... Well, you know, He was still living in a time where uh, you had prophecies. So With Haman. With Haman, yeah.
0: Yes, what's the connection between Amalek and...
1: Well, he was an Amalekite.
0: Yes. But, I'm just, but I'm what does that have to do with idolatry?
1: Well, it has to do with idolatry because it wasn't the point, p- point of Amalek that they were denying God's existence, or was it different? No, the
0: early, the early what, you, what you, we might call atheists in the early phase, mm. were people who all acknowledged that there was God. But to a le- greater or lesser degree, they denied his involvement mm. in the world. Mm. Technically, that's called the watchmaker theory. He created it and wound it up. How, where did this come from otherwise? Mm. Only the world's in a big mess, in case you hadn't noticed. It yeah. means he's not involved anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: That was a, 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 even the Greeks acknowledged that there must have been a God who created the world and happened by itself. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's an invention of the modern age. Sure that it doesn't need explanation. Right. And so you're
1: saying also when they take away this desire for idolatry, we also probably have a harder time with spirituality
0: in general. Indeed we do. Indeed. We have a great, very, in fact, the, the scientific ethos with, with, within which we live is an ethos and an ambience of, there's no ultimate level, there's no transcendent level at all. Yeah. What you see is what you get. The Greeks specifically introduced that. We, can, we deal with what we can experiment with empirically, And what we can reach philosophically, that's all. Mm. And our battle against them was there's something higher. That's why the Greek battle was fought against the high priests of the Jewish people, the Kohanim. Why did they suddenly become, because they represent a connection with something higher. The mayoral famously points out that the word Kohen equals 75. Seven is always the the number of the natural world. Eight is always the transcendent world. 75 is the number that joins the two. Kohen is the one that joins the two. So it was those who assert that there's a spiritual world that can be manifest here who battled the Greeks. Mm. And nothing could be more relevant to us. We today are Greek. Our heads are Greek. All of our Western structures are Greek. Politics, economics, history, aesthetics architecture, painting... Not
1: Roman as well?
0: Well, the Romans were the mighty empire who spread Greek thinking around the world. Mm. The Romans didn't have a culture of their own, right? Mm. The Romans were the, the muscle that, that, that built on Greek on Greek thought. Mm. So our world today, even the English language, goes back to Latin and a Greek root. Mm. So we today are a, a thoroughly Greek. Jews who live in the Arab world is a different question. They were brought up in, in a, different, with a different ordeal, in a different nemesis. But ours is clearly the Greek world. <laughs>
1: Okay, so, we've touched on why this generation finds spirituality so challenging, uh, at least in part. Um, what can we do about that? Is there anything we can do to engage in a more accessible way with spirituality?
0: Yes, I think we can. I think that the definitive answer to that question is Torah study. Torah study in general is an avenue of access to a higher world. A lot of it is counterintuitive to our, our consciousness in our generation but it's a disciplined, a, a disciplined way of thinking. It trains logical analysis and insight and lateral thinking as well and spiritual sensitivity. There's the division of Torah that we call Musa, which is the aspect of training, the, the, the facet of Torah which teaches personality building, which means overcoming one's lack of objectivity, one's vested interests. Um, there are many themes within Judaism today that practice various forms of meditation, which I think is excellent to open a higher consciousness. So I think, it, I think probably the, the, the overall answer to your question comes back one way or another to Torah study. Of course, it has to be done with common sense, with intelligence, the correct agenda in Torah. You can learn a lot of Torah and just have technical information too. Indeed. Yeah, so, so correct prayer experience, correct meditation experience so that one is open. Probably, perhaps, perhaps the most of all is, is having a teacher who is clearly enlightened with respect, you know, compared to one, one's own current level Mm. So you can it, you absorb from a person who has clearly achieved a, a deeper insight. I think those are critical. Much harder, as you say now, than it was previously, but just as essential.
1: And you think doing these things can sort of generate a, a different mindset, a different way of experiencing
0: life? Yes, I think experience, experience shows us that. Mm. It may be difficult. We, we, are, we are railing against a very loud and insistent culture, a culture of noise and superficiality. That clearly makes it much more difficult, but we see that, that people, people succeed.
1: And what tips would you advise to someone who wants to uh, grow morally as a person and also to, to work on their humility? Because I think there's, that's like one of the videos you did with us on JTV previously was saying how humility is like a central element of what the Torah asked of human beings.
0: Yes, I think that the, 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 the conventional tool has always been studying the great works that teach that, teach that subject perhaps most classically, Masilisi showing the path of the just, in which he so clearly um, teaches the principles and also lampoons and mocks the false modesty and the, you know, um, the pitfalls one can fall into.
1: My favorite Golden Mare quote is, don't be so humble, you're not that great. Uh-huh. Fine, <laughs> fine,
0: Well, you know, the Buddhists say you can be proud of your humility. You can fall into that trap too. Mm. So, again, it's Musa teaching that, that, that the greats of Musa would prescribe not only academic learning, but also exercises. The great school of Navodok they would deliberately publicly humiliate themselves. Now, oh, I, wouldn't, wow. I wouldn't say don't try, don't try that at home. <laughs> you know, but nevertheless, they would put themselves into experiences that would break the ego. Mm. If one is serious, one can think about that as well. Um, engaging Torah at a high level is naturally humbling. If you have a teacher who is really worthy of respect... You can't feel pride in front of a person like that when you see how much there is to achieve and you haven't, you haven't done so. Mm. So I think the, the opportunities to learn humility are certainly there. But it takes a will and common sense and uh, effort. Yeah.
1: Do you think that millennials, it's often it's said that they need to learn uh, toughness and resilience a bit more, need to toughen up, um, but, at the same time there 's a move uh, in this generation which I think is is very welcome towards greater uh, sensitivity and engaging with one 's feelings there 's a huge rise in people seeing therapists um, there 's ri- you know there 's just a greater movement towards um, mental health um, but some people say that you can be overly indulgent so do, what, what do you think is more needed in this generation and what's the right balance between resilience versus being sensitive to one's emotions?
0: First of all, I think that the move towards therapy and um, a need for therapy, I think that's probably an indication of an unhealthy psyche. right? I think that in a normal generation, people probably don't need to, to be helped, to be taught how to, how to simply be normal. Of course, if it's needed, one, one, one should avail oneself of it. So, I think, yes, it is a generation that has lost touch with the, with the genuine and the, the basic common sense and the basic elements of personality. I think that's true. Um, and I think that where therapy is necessary, that, that, that. Can you expand on what you mean by that?
1: We've lost that we, what that we've lost. Yes, that. well,
0: I think in this pre messianic generation, far as we are from the spiritual source, as we said before, it's natural to lose, to lose touch. When you live in a culture that teaches that there's no real absolute meaning and there's nothing really beyond your experience. That's very disconcerting, can be very, very alienating, can lead to a real ex- existential pain. The answer to that is, is religion, good religion, not, not superficial, cheap religion, but good religion. The problem in the world today is not religion, it's bad religion, right? And therefore, people connected to a sense of meaning that is absolute, absolute frame of reference, that's the healthiest form of grounding and orientation that you, that you could possibly hope for. Resilience and toughness, Possibly, yes, probably, probably. I think it is a spoiled generation in some, in some sense. Of course, it depends where you're talking. If you're talking about American culture, for example, which dominates a lot of Western culture, it does tend to be a culture that has lost touch with its own genuine, genuine self. I mean, whether you refer to you know, daily mass shootings or uh, many, many aspects of Western culture. So probably resilience, I, I think it probably boils down to common sense and uh, just being grounded in the, in the norms.
1: Mm. And where do you, th- if you had to pick one, what would you, what would you say you'd, you think the, the average person in Western society pick one needs what, more of? One, word. one, one fact of, um, uh, you know, sensitivity or resilience.
0: I'm not sure they conflict with each other, Oli. I mean, I, I think that there's a, an array of issues. I, I'm not sure I could pick one. Well, for example, if someone's dealing them.
1: with, let's say someone's dealing with an issue. Yes. Is your, does it, when you're counselling people, yes. do you, is your message more of learn to be resilient and get on with it and toughen up? Or okay. let's, in, let's talk, talk it through and think about it and let, hear your feelings out?
0: I have a strong feeling that the most basic component you need for personal development is objectivity, to see things as they are. The most difficult thing to see as it is is yourself. That's why you need a teacher who can reflect back to you things that you wouldn't see about yourself. Mm. But I think if you forced me to choose one quality, it is to, is you could call it truth or objectivity, to see things as they are. You counsel, you you talk about counseling persons. you talk to a person going through difficulties, the first thing is to read the situation correctly. In fact, if a therapist can do that very well, very often no more is needed. As soon as the person can see clearly, right, that they're making a big fuss about a trivial thing and everything's getting destroyed in the process, and they can see that and make that shift, that's often all that is needed. Yeah.
1: I want to touch on uh, an area that you talk about in your book on free will, which was released a few years ago, Um, the sins of the greats, which is I think one of the chapters. Um, I I remember even when I was at school, people talking to me about uh, biblical characters and issues and saying, oh, you know. These they, really, they really messed up, you know, even like even, almost as if to say if I was in their shoes, I wouldn't right. have done it. You know, so whether whether it's the brothers selling Joseph, whether it's King David, the parents seemingly having affairs, uh, you know, there's there's Abraham expelling uh, yeah. Hagar and Ishmael. So and yet at the same time, you say we need to understand that this. It's not all, you can't take it at face value, basically. Right. Um, can you expand on that for our view? Yes,
0: first of all, we need to be careful with our examples. Abraham expelling Hagar was not a moral failing. It may be a challenge to us to understand. Ah, yeah. cre- there are others like King David and yeah. his relationships with, with, with women, which are indeed targeted by the Torah itself as errors. But when you talk about the sins of the greats, the principle that you need to understand those is that everyone is always battling their own lower self in proportion to their greatness, as we said before. So had you been present with King David at the time when he is contemplating what we call a sin, you wouldn't have understood what was wrong with it. After all, this woman was destined for him. Kabbalistically, he's known as Bathsheba. That marriage resulted in King Solomon, the forerunner of the Mashiach. Not bad for a sin. So there's a, the, the, the thing to understand here is that they were tempted at a level of incredible power, but at their level of subtlety. The Torah brands it and blasts it with the full force of a failure because at their level it was a failure. So the concept is that when you criticize a professional, you criticize him at the level of professional. So when when you're watching the football match and the greatest player in the world, right, misses the goal by an inch, in incredibly difficult circumstances, and you say failure, idiot, hopeless, useless, you mean at his level. Had you been there, you would have probably been flattened, you know, without even seeing the ball. But of course, he's paid at his level, and, and expected to perform at his level. And therefore, you know, when the famous brain surgeon makes a slip of half a millimeter that you wouldn't have noticed, with disastrous consequences, he, is, he pays the price at his level. And that's appropriate. But when you criticize him at your level, thinking you're at his level, you're making a serious mistake. And therefore, the sins of the greats, the Torah doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't whitewash their sins at all. But you need the respect to know that they failed at their level of professional challenge. When King David saw Bathsheba, he was not seeing simply a woman in the sense of a, um, you know, a casual affair. He saw the Messiah coming out of this relationship. The temptation wasn't a simple fallen, childish, adolescent right. passion. He saw the future of the world hinging, hinging upon this relationship. Yeah. That's a temptation yeah. for a person like that. And this, the Torah grants you the, gives you the credit to understand this without being told it explicitly all the way down the line. Had you been present when Adam made his choice, right, with all his calculations? I wouldn't <laughs> have made that mistake. <laughs> Had you been present, you would have thought it was the greatest mitzvah. So, so when you study these things, you see they operate at a level of tremendous professional subtlety. But at their level, there's no, they're no pulling any punches about that. Mm. That's just common sense. When you judge a child in a school, You judge the child against his level. If the teacher compares one child to another with lesser abilities, that's a cruel, unreasonable teacher. The reason for a test is for the teacher to call the child over and to say, for you that result's not good enough. But to make a child feel inferior because he did worse than another child, who's more gifted, that's ridiculous. The Talmud says that in the world to come, you see no one else other than yourself and what you could have been. not compared to someone else. That's ridiculous. You are shown yourself, stripped of all facade and illusion, and what you could have been. That's your standard for judgment. And therefore, the correct, when you judge a King David or whoever it is, you judge him at the level of what he is and what he could have been, which is cosmic compared to, compared to us, but that's the correct standard of judgment.
1: You have a, an entire talk devoted to understanding uh, Adam's sin, from, and any sin of eating from the, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Um, in, in a nutshell, would you be able to elaborate on why you say that he saw it potentially as doing a positive commandment? Because that's like very perplexing.
0: Well this is a long subject to go into. I'm sorry, but, but a key I guess this is not a simple obviously the Torah begins here and therefore all of human function and morality depends on the correct understanding of this. Another thing to discuss in a, in in a couple of minutes. Mm. But um, one of the basic concepts is that he wanted to amplify the range of his free will. His free will was to do almost nothing to reach perfection. And he reasoned that that's an amazing opportunity but where what, how am I showing how much I love God? By asserting myself against difficulty. Let me take a step back into the void, into the chaos, and rebuild it myself. Mm-hmm. Right? The Talmud goes so far as to say, let us give thanks to our forefathers, because had they not sinned, we would not have been here. So the downside is the misery of 6,000 years of human suffering. The upside is we're here to serve God and do what we have to do. That was the calculation. In absolute godly terms, he made a mistake. But in terms of the result, our being here, all of human history and its great achievements, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. In fact, the Talmud goes so far as to call that a veronishma That means a sin for the right reason, which sometimes is required. So it was a very, very subtle choice at a cosmic level of greatness by a human being who represented all of mankind with no intrinsic, childish, lecherous materialism at all, simply an intellectual calculation, which at his level of greatness, of course, he... He got wrong, but it's important to understand what that double is. Right.
1: Okay. So two two final areas I want to get into. Um, first one is I think there's no doubt that the spread of uh, Christianity and Islam um, has, in many ways, just transformed the world's understanding of many of the basic truths that Judaism holds dear, uh, Abrahamic monotheism. Uh, what, and I understand that the bum that Maimonides speaks about, that they are in some ways a force for, for good in terms of spreading, spreading Abrahamic monotheism. Um, what would you say are the, top, the the best things that have come from Christianity and Islam? And what are the things that, you're, that you think are more negative and, and Judaism would disagree with?
0: Sounds like a very dangerous question. <laughs> To put out into the public uh, domain, but let me pick up one thing you said. You, sure. s- you quoted the Rambam. In fact, what he says to be accurate is he says that Christianity and Islam have spread around the world very powerfully. The idea that there will be a messianic redemption, he says, that now it's on mm-hmm. everyone's lips. Right? They have their version the of, of a messianic. Days, yeah. they, they have their version of a messianic figure that we do not agree with, but nevertheless, what comes out of that discussion, and you probably know this was censored. The, the editions of the Rambam, the common ones that you see around, this, this is completely censored. Oh, wow. In the reprintings that have been done now, this has all been reinserted. And there the Rambam has a long section in which he says clearly that for all the suffering we've had at their hands, the Muslim world and the Christian world, the advantage has been and the, 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 the pervasive and remaining advantage is that the, 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 the concept <coughs> of a redeemer who will be truly great and spiritual, is on everyone's lips as he puts it in the furthest reaches of the distant islands. And so when, it, when, it, when that dawn begins to break, it'll be recognized. Right. That's what he says. And that is correct. It's tragic that it's happened in a way where there's been so much persecution and so much bloodshed in the name of religion, as I said, bad religion. But that is the upside, and he says that clearly.
1: Well, do you, what, what do you think are some of the most striking uh, disagreements we've had?
0: With the, the reality, Christians and which, the Muslims? Yeah. Again, I'm not sure I want to speak about this publicly. Okay. Obviously, with Christianity, we disagree about the persona of the, the Redeemer that they look up to as a messianic or, or divine or semi-divine figure. Obviously, we, don't, um, we, we are cl- clearly not agreeing with that. The, the Islamic idea is that Muhammad was still in the generation of prophecy. Our teaching is that he lived later than that generation but um, as you correctly say both islam and christianity are based on our on the testament on the old testament they even call it that mm-hmm. so that um the chapters of the quran right are Dawood, which is david yunus which is jonah so they clearly go back to the same personalities and christianity of course is openly based on the on the old testament so there's no question that the basis is there right but i think that's not perhaps the appropriate forum okay to go no to sure, to i get that. i understand service. that
1: Okay, so finally, I want to talk about, just uh, going back to your book and the story of Jewish history, Um, the messianic era. I understand that we want, that we yearn for this idea of a messianic era, an era of peace for the entire world, an era of spirituality and connection. Um, But why do we need, I've never really understood this, why do we need a messiah? Why do we need to have, like, it it seems like it's kind of, it seems almost un-Jewish in a sense like ra- like rallying around a single person as like our saviour,
0: right. you know? Yes, indeed. Well, what sounds un-Jewish about it is relating to God through an intermediary. Mm. That, you mentioned Christianity, that is a problem we have. In other words, we are always dealing directly with the source and not going through intermediaries to whom we ascribe divine power. Mm. But the Mashiach, the Messiah, does not fulfill that role. His role is technically to be a king. And the role of the king, as the Rambam makes clear, is to unite the people. And therefore, he's not a person that will be worshipped as such. He's an individual, as a king is and should be, to rally and connect the Jewish people into one source that connects with the ultimate source. And therefore, just like there was always a Jewish king, which came at a price, often, nevertheless, the role of the king, he's called technically Achad Ha'am. The the loose English translation is one of the people. But the deep translation, he is the oneness of the people, he is the ma'ached, he's the one who unites the people. Or to give it a slightly different, different take, it's this, is that when the Mashiach arrives, not only will God be revealing himself correctly in the world, as he should be, and openly, but so will we. The Mashiach will be the one individual who unites humankind in a function that is what the human being should look like. Namely, the Mashiach will be the greatest, most incontrovertibly powerful king who's ever lived. Total dominion of the whole earth unprecedented un, in, incontrovertible power and he will show that he's nothing that's that's humanity yeah. so that is um that is the purpose it's, the purpose is to be a fully developed human being who unites all of humanity it's for this reason that the path of mashiach through history has always been so sordid sordid the, the seed of mashiach comes through Lot and his daughters yeah Yehuda and tamar illicit relationship yeah. time and again deception the blessing is going to Right, it's like giving them to Jacob when he thinks it's as... Yeah. The secret is that f- for a number of reasons, the messianic line has to come through the most apparently sordid of all pathways in history. <laughs> One of the reasons for that is because all has to be redeemed. All has to be uplifted. And therefore the Mashiach has to come from the deepest and darkest recesses of human history because he has to bring that home too. Mm. It's also why he consists of a messianic, of a, of a um, convert, a line of converts as well. Who's the great grandmother of King David? Ruth. Right? So that we are talking about bringing in the sparks from the whole world and uniting them. The Mashiach has that function too.
1: But, but America, for example, sort of said that they're going to be sort of one people under God. They didn't say one people with our you know, president or our ruler right. under God. So right. I'm trying to understand the function of this. Leader in how? How does having one person that we can all focus around? How does that help?
0: Yeah. You see, Oli, you, you're raised in the under the banner of a democracy. I know, right? I know, very and democracy is, the, as many have said, the the best of very bad options. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but nevertheless, and um, it's probably the best we can do now. Mm. But that's not the Torah model. The Torah model is a is a, a royalty where the the total manifestation of the royalty is only in bondage to the people. Right? There's no, there's no uh, personal aggrandizement of the king at all. And he is representing the divine rule on earth. He's the point of connection between, between the two. We always are doing that one way or another. We, to the Levim, to the kohanim, to the Kohen Gadol, right? Yes, this was one of the uh, debates that took place in the, in the early years of Hasidus, the Hasidic idea. There's the rabbi, On the one hand, he's you're able to be uplifted through him. On the other hand, there's the danger that he will be seen as larger than life in some way, which could be taken amiss. Yeah. That was the issue. So there were two, two approaches to that, of course. One was one to, to let, let that flourish, and the other was to be very skeptical of that. But nevertheless, this is the concept. The concept is a messianic persona who will unite the Jewish people around that figure of a king, whether it was Moses in his day or King David in his day. That will be replayed.
1: Oh, is always fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today and listening to JTV Podcasts. You can buy more podcasts from JTV, including interviews with Rabbi Manus Friedman, Dennis Prager, Rabbi Dr. Kiva Tatz, and many more. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Just search for JTV Podcasts with Oli Hannesfeld. Don't forget to subscribe on the JTV YouTube channel for hundreds of videos on Jewish philosophy, Israel, Jewish wisdom, and much, much more. Please consider supporting us so we can continue to grow. Just visit paypal.me forward slash JTV channel.